and welcome to Infectious Info. This podcast is brought to you by the Infectious Disease Working Group from the University of Toronto. The Infectious Disease Working Group is a collaboration of public health graduate students who aim to improve public awareness on infectious diseases, including COVID-19. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Infectious Info. This podcast is funded by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Award, which supports student-led projects that contribute to building healthy, resilient, and equitable communities as a part of our post-COVID-19 recovery. Hello, everyone. My name is Megan Lowe, and I'm a Master's of Public Health student here at Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Before I introduce my wonderful guest today, I wanted to begin with a land acknowledgement and take some time to reflect on what it means to be a settler and honour those who came before me. I acknowledge that the land of the University of Toronto operates on. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today, this meeting place is still the home of many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work and benefit from this land. Today, I am joined with Dr. Suzanne Stewart, who is a member of the Yellowknife Dene First Nation and a registered psychologist. She is the director of the Wakapanes Rice Institute for Indigenous Health and an associate professor in social and behavioral health sciences here at Dalalana. Today, we will be discussing Indigenous health and hearing Dr. Stewart's expertise on the topics. So hello, Dr. Stewart. Uh, thank you again for joining me here today. So how are you? Hello, thank you for having me. Awesome. Yeah, so I am very excited to sit down and talk to you as someone who's still learning about the Indigenous cultures and traditions. Um, I think this will be very valuable to our listeners as well. Um, so just a little preface, I you know wanted to start this podcast topic mainly because uh, in my first year of the public health intro course, I got to hear from uh, Dr. Mashford Pringle, and she talked about some of the, the inequities and health inequities faced by Indigenous people. Um, I wonder, Dr. Stewart, if you can discuss uh, from your own experiences or what you've witnessed as an Indigenous person about the health inequities in Canada? Um, well, I'm, I'm happy to talk about um, from, you know, from the perspective of the research and the data, as well as my own context. Uh, so um, Indigenous people in Canada have a higher burden of uh, illness, disease, uh, and other social and health problems that are all due to uh, systemic oppression. Uh, how this all happened is really to do with, sorry, with to do with the creation of Canada and uh, the systemic policies that were created in order to allow the country of Canada to be built. Uh, so many rules and policies uh, were put into place into the 1800s and continue today that create a scenario by which Indigenous people have less of what they need to be healthy and more of what they uh, more of what makes you unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you saw that, I think, in the highlight of the COVID-19 pandemic as well, right? Those health inequities really being highlighted. And that's something um, that I learned in my public health courses that I, I wasn't aware of. I was wondering if you can talk about how COVID-19 impacted um, the community in terms of homelessness and mental health, which is, I believe, most of your research that touches upon too. Yes. Um, well, Indigenous people uh, have this higher burden of uh, health 
and social problems due to systemic oppressions, not due to biological or technical processes uh, or, or individual health, but more to do with this systemic context that's been set up um, by uh, the systems of Canada, the healthcare system, uh, the education system, the justice system, and the child welfare systems. And, and this, this has created a scenario by which Indigenous people have, uh, for example, higher rates of things such as chronic diseases uh, and, and health problems like diabetes, uh, other uh, heart disease, um, many different uh, types of uh, social and mental health problems like uh, th there is a higher rate and incidence of of mental health uh, issues. And when we look at what happens when a health crisis like a pandemic comes along, um, populations who are more vulnerable to begin with end up bearing a larger brunt of, of that pandemic's impact. And with Indigenous people, we have the added burden of racism and access within the healthcare system uh, on top of these, these already precarious health situations. So when we have a group of people who don't feel safe accessing healthcare or who are unable to access healthcare, um, then they're at greater risk of contracting uh, something like COVID-19 and becoming more critically ill than, than another person who didn't have this context. In addition to that, COVID-19 also created a scenario by which many people's uh, original traumas or intergenerational traumas were triggered by the pandemic and by being forced into uh, medical procedures or health access that perhaps they didn't want to uh, want to engage in um, for, for many of their own valid reasons, or were also isolated and uh, told they weren't able to leave their homes or their communities, uh, which was another trigger to uh, to colonial trauma that has happened uh, throughout the last 160 years in Canada for Indigenous people systemically. Yeah, and to your point about um, this community not feeling safe uh, during this time, I was working at um, the Anishinaabe Health Toronto as a volunteer for the vaccination clinic, and I got to see um, the hesitancy, the vaccine hesitancy that this community experienced. I was wondering if you can discuss the con contributing factors uh, to that vaccine hesitancy a little bit more. Well, I think it's important to understand that it's not really vaccine hesitancy per se, um, which sounds very pathological. Uh, it, it's really more a distrust of the healthcare system because Indigenous people have experienced a lot of harms in healthcare and research, um, having had procedures done against their will, having been involved in experiments without consent. I mean, these are things that have happened not just in the past, but continue to happen today. So 
So it's it's very difficult for someone who has been betrayed by a particular system like the healthcare system to really trust that system when they tell them, oh, you need to go do this now, like you need to get a vaccine. So it's not really vaccine hesitancy. I wouldn't say it's more mistrust of the system and uh, ongoing experiences of personal and systemic racism. Mm-hmm. that have created that scenario. And, and in addition to that, there, there are also many Indigenous people who don't actually um, believe for spiritual reasons in using Western biomedicine. And, and that's that's not vaccine hesitancy. That's, that's actually having a different paradigm and practice of health and health care. Yeah, no, thank you so much for for bringing that. Because um, that <laughs> that I, you know, I, as I'm still learning, and um, it's great to have these conversations because it really benefits me and other listeners. Um, and to your your research, I believe on on homelessness. I was wondering, do you, do you see an increase um, in homelessness within the indigenous population um, during the COVID nineteen or over time? Well, during COVID-19, especially during the first few waves of the pandemic in 2020, uh, many of the social services that uh, people who are precariously housed or experienced homelessness or were at the risk of of homelessness uh, lost those services because many of those services closed down during the pandemic. Vital services for uh, food, uh, emergency shelter, Emergent emerge, emergency medical and mental health services were no longer available, mm-hmm. so people did experience a spike in 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 not having a a permanent or safe residence or even temporary residence, and and when that happened, actually. What we found um, in the Indigenous communities that we were serving in downtown Toronto was that there was actually a lower rate of COVID among people because they really stayed isolated and away from the uh, institutional settings where they'd been accessing services before. So there was actually less COVID amongst the living rough population of people who who were experiencing um, homelessness during that time, at least in 2020. By the time we got into later 2021 and early 2022, when we had other variants that were highly contagious, um, but with less serious symptoms, uh, we found more of a spike in, in the incidence of COVID among the homeless population in downtown Toronto. But initially, when there was that kind of really scary time for the first year before people uh, had access to a vaccine, there was actually less COVID among the homeless population in Toronto the Indigenous homeless population. Oh, that's great. Interesting. And you mentioned as with COVID-19, the services um, for mental health services had to close down. I would assume that the mental health um, illnesses would have increased the incidence of it in the population. Is that something that was witnessed? Well, I think many of our urban Indigenous organizations um, did an excellent job of of modifying their services to provide virtual services and to continue to provide services as much as they could during um, the lockdown periods that we had. So I think um, I think people's mental health did suffer a lot to do with being um, 
with being activated to previous traumas, mm-hmm. as well as having uh, limited uh, access to things, especially things like ceremony and traditional healing, because those are things that had never been really, as far as I know, offered virtually before. And then suddenly we had people who were deciding to do ceremony online or who were considering the possibility of that. And that became a very sort of difficult and strange thing because that is not a protocol that had ever really been considered um, as acceptable prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, and I I actually attended um, my first ceremony with um, Kim Wheatley, grandmother Kim Wheatley, and um, that was a quite a eye opening experience and also wonderful to to hear and um, from her and her experiences because it was actually the first time they had gathered um, together the Anishinaabe Health Toronto um, and uh, had the ceremony for everyone in, in the Commons Park here in Toronto. Um, but th- thank you again for speaking upon uh, you know the homelessness and mental health uh, incidents here in Toronto. I was wondering if you can talk about um, what are some ways that we can minimize these health disparities moving forward? Well, the fact is, is that racism and access, racism in healthcare and access to healthcare continue to be the main barriers to health for Indigenous people. Um, not individual or biological processes. And it's really important for systemic changes to occur around um, things like cultural safety training for all healthcare professionals. Um, The uh, policy around access uh, to Indigenous and Western healthcare modalities is also very important. Um, having things like Indigenous patient navigators in healthcare systems. So, you know, that is having a person who's assigned to work with each Indigenous patient who's accessing uh, healthcare services to ensure that they're actually safe in the process and and not being harmed uh, throughout the process, which is kind of really sad that we have to put something like that in place. But but that's really what we have to do right now, um, because we don't have a system that's safe for Indigenous people. And and I uh, when I walk into a hospital or um, for service or a an emergency room, I experience the same types of racism, even though I'm 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 a person who understands the system and knows how to navigate the system. I also experience those same oppressions and incidents of really in-your-face racist treatment, and because it's so pervasive in the healthcare system that um, that the doctors and nurses and uh, hospital um, administration still think it's acceptable to to treat people differently um, because of their race or their culture. Yeah, and that really saddens me to hear that. And, um, you know, as someone who, who's not an Indigenous individual, it's something that I want to and who wants to be, you know, working in a healthcare field um, in the future. You know, I want to make sure that I am making sure that my patients are all treated equally and and um you know to hear something like that it's it's something that definitely needs to be changed within the healthcare system and um i was wondering if you can talk about what are some ways that non-indigenous individuals um can support and actively um you know help indigenous communities and especially in the healthcare team too 
Well, I think one really important thing is, um, you know, getting cultural safety training. And, and I know this is something that's more widely available now and, and is actually also available at the Dalana School of Public Res Public Respect, Public Health <laughs> in the... Uh, in in the in a new program uh, called New Respect Cultural Safety Training that Dr. Angela Mashford Pringle um, developed and launched this year, so I know that's available. And if you just Google that on the on the Dalana website or just on 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 the web, uh, you should be able to find access to that training. And there are many other cultural safety trainings. Also, I think uh, anyone who's engaging in Indigenous research really needs to take the OCAP training, um, uh, the OCAP principles, which stand for ownership, control, access, and possession, uh, were developed in the um, mid-2000s uh, in order to address the harms uh, and the oppressions that have occurred uh, to Indigenous people through research. Mm -hmm. uh, these are things that still continue to happen, uh, harms through research. And I think it's really important for students to understand that research includes um, using secondary data and existing literature. So if we're doing any research on Indigenous uh, issues, we really need to understand what the ethical issues are before we start putting paper to pen or finger to keyboard uh, and, and start to, to write things based on what existing data is out there. Uh, because it's very easy to inadvertently continue uh, to perpetuate trauma against Indigenous people through research uh, and through unsafe practices in healthcare. And, you know, people get very caught up in, well, what does that mean to, to practice cultural safety? And, and what that really means is to be aware of your own biases, uh, to to take a you know a perspective of cultural humility, meaning I as the professional don't know everything, mm -hmm. and and I never will know everything, and to come into um, healthcare settings with that attitude rather than the expert stance attitude, uh, as well as to learn cultural sensitivity and competency, and then to add um, empathy and empowerment to how we interact with uh with clients with patients with uh research partners or research participants and even with each other because practicing cultural safety really yields better outcomes uh in terms of uh health you know health status but it also earns better outcomes in terms of uh client and patient satisfaction and when clients and patients are satisfied they come back mm -hmm they come back and continue their journey to health and well-being. And that's something that doesn't happen when people don't feel safe. Yeah, and it's as important. Um, that's a great point in, in research. Um, as students, we are you know, reading a lot of these research papers, but we need to be very critical in the way that these authors are writing, what they're putting down you know, on the paper, as you mentioned. And on the topic of uh, research, I was wondering if you can share with our listeners um, what current research you're working on and um, any projects that you're excited about? Well, we have a lot of exciting projects. So, um, so I'm 
I, I work with the Ontario Network for Environments in Indigenous Health Research, which is shortened to Ontario NEAR. And if you, you look up uh, Ontario NEAR on the Dalana website, or if you just Google it, you'll see that this is a large research network with uh, that's regional to Ontario, but has national and international reach. And in this uh, research network, which is focused on Indigenous mental health, we uh, we do research uh, with Indigenous communities um, that looks at all aspects of mental health, from hospital care to uh, land-based healing to trauma and addictions research. And, and that includes research like what we've been doing for the last uh, two years around COVID-19. So our, our team here at Dalana has been working on uh, developing and evaluating programs through the pandemic to address mental health for Indigenous uh, youth and families involved in the child welfare system, as well as Indigenous women who uh, are street involved or who experience uh, violence, uh, inter intimate partner violence or systemic violence, uh, as well as doing a, a program evaluation around the experiences of COVID-19 testing and vaccination and how that interacts with um, being experiencing homelessness or being at risk of homeless, of, of, of not having a fixed address. So we've done these three major projects uh, over the last two years, and we're just about to publish the final reports of those, which will be on our website. In addition to that, the Ontario NEAR has monthly webinars, uh, which are archived on our website as well. So every month we have an Indigenous health or mental health expert, uh, either from the Indigenous community or one of our co-investigators or community partners uh, giving a talk about their current Indigenous mental health research, which you can access there on our website. And um, my memory is really bad, but I think we, we have another one coming up before the end of July. And, and then we have those every month going forward um, for the life of the Ontario NEAR, which is a five-year project and has the option to be renewed at the end of the five years. So, so we've just finished uh, evaluating those COVID-19 mental health services with uh, and vaccine services with three different Indigenous organizations in downtown Toronto. So we're kind of bringing that to an end. Another exciting project that we have just recently started is looking at the mental health impacts of climate change for Indigenous youth. Um, we're partnered with the Northwest Territories near on that. So um, that's a project that's driven by our elders who have asked us to work with young people to help them identify how cl the climate crisis impacts their uh, mental health and well-being and then work with an Indigenous theatre person to take those themes and those impacts and put them, creates short plays that Indigenous youth in Toronto and in the Northwest Territories are going to create and then share with each other. Wow, that sounds so exciting. <laughs> Lots of research. Exciting. 
pretty exciting and so much research going on, which is, I think, very exciting for, you know, the community and, and to those, you know, listening. Thank you again for, you know, plugging in all the, the information resources. I was actually, um, just now was, was reading over or watching the, the seminars and webinars that are also posted on, on YouTube too, that is accessible as well. Um, you mentioned the youth and reaching out to, to the Aboriginal youth. And I was wondering if you can talk about, I know in your research, um, you mentioned Aboriginal education. I was wondering if you can, you can talk with the listeners about what that is and how it can empower this community? Well, I mean, I think education can have a lot to offer people, but education is only going to be as good as the system that it's offered in. And I would say most Indigenous children continue to have really negative experiences in the public school system and um, and, and also nev- negative experiences in the on-reserve systems, which are in a process of um, revitalization to Indigenous ways of uh, teaching and learning right now on reserves. Um, the school systems in Canada, the public provincial school systems continue to be rife with racism, uh, bullying, uh, unfair treatment, and uh, lack of culturally sensitive and competent educational material uh, and teaching uh, approaches for our young people. And this is something that really needs to be addressed at a grand level. Um, the the stats around educational attainment and achievement for Indigenous youth uh, and children is extremely dismal. However, I would also say that those large scale statistics are completely inaccurate and totally wrong, um, as are most Indigenous health big data attempts or even any Indigenous uh, data um, it really lacks the ability to be generalized because there is no way to accurately at this time capture uh, the population of Indigenous identities and their education or health status in Canada because by varying accounts in various regions, around 70% of the Indigenous population lives off reserve. And many people who live off reserve are not going to come forward and self-identify within research, within census, within anything for reasons of uh, historical and continued um uh, oppressions is just too light of a word but historic and continued you know aggressions and assaults by the system so there there's just no way to to get that information so most of the information that floats around that people base their research or knowledge on is on reserve information. So when you have a very small community of 80 people or 300 people somewhere, and these are people who are living in a context that is of extreme deprivation and has been of extreme deprivation since the reserve system was created because the objective of the reserves was to take people out and put them somewhere, take away all their resources, give them nothing in return, and have them either die in that space or leave and assimilate into the Euro-Canadian white population. Because the goal of, of the Indian Act 
of which the First Nations Reserve System is a part, is to eradicate the population, either through death or through assimilation. So, of course, we're going to have a group of people who have very difficult uh, and challenging lives with very little resources for many generations. So, basing education status, health status on these populations of people who've lived in deprivation and continue to do so is not an accurate picture of the many healthy and functioning Indigenous people who exist off reserve. So I don't really have an answer as to how that data can be captured or even if it should be captured really. But what does need to happen is that researchers and systems need to stop generalizing data that's about a specific population, small piece, small population or subset of a larger population like Indians on reserve and saying that this is the case for all Indigenous people across Canada because that's how things have been done and still are being done today. Yeah, that's a, and to that point of making sure the research is not, um, where the researchers who are conducting this research um, need to be aware of their biases and um, uh, make sure that, you know, readers who are like me, who are reading this research and trying to understand are more are aware of that it cannot be generalized. So I think that's a great point. Um, I wish we had, you know, more time to discuss. I think this is, you know, we could talk about this and learn from you all day. Um, just before we, we wrap up, I was wondering if you can share uh, some of the courses that you're teaching at U of T and um, what, what are some things that, that students can look forward to when taking those courses? So I just want to add one more thing before I talk about the courses. So um, so I'm the editor of the International Journal for Indigenous Health, which we publish at the Wakaban S. Bryce Institute for Indigenous Health Research here at the Dalana School of Public Health. And we just released two issues uh, last week or the week before, very recently. Um, one issue is on COVID specifically, and the other issue is a general health issue. So if you're really interested in looking at some of the very up-to-the-minute research on Indigenous populations in North America slash Turtle Island and around the world, that's a great place to find that research. And we only publish research that is community-driven, um, that includes uh, Indigenous uh, researchers working together uh, with other researchers, and that meets certain ethical standards for safe research with Indigenous people, culturally safe. So I urge you to go onto the IJIH website and look at those two new issues and also read my editorials, which really get, talk a lot about some of the touch touch on some of the things that we've talked about here. So the courses, so the courses, the Indigenous health courses at Dalana are really all in the Masters of Public Health in Indigenous Health stream of SBHS. And um and and the courses that I typically teach are uh, the practicum preparation course, which is like a course in trauma-informed cultural safety practice. Uh, and then the other course I'm teaching this year, this fall is, um, I think it's 
health policy, but I'm not 100% sure. Okay. I, have to look. <laughs> I think it's social and health policy, Indigenous social and health policy. And, and I generally teach whatever course uh, as well in the Indigenous health program um, that needs to be taught. And I do, I do love teaching. And I have a policy that anyone who asks to be in my classes, even if they're not in the Indigenous health program or even at Dalana, is welcome into the class because they'll never turn away anyone who wants to learn or who wants to work in Indigenous health. So many students come to me asking to uh, volunteer work on my research. And I, I usually always say yes to people because anyone who wants to get involved in help or learn is totally welcome as far as I'm concerned. So I'm probably breaking a lot of rules doing that with letting anyone into my classes, but I do it anyways. And I don't care if there's 40 people in the class, if they all want to be there, I think that's wonderful. Yes, I agree too. I think that's great. And, um, you know, I, I was interested in taking the the Indigenous health. So I think I'll look into that as well um, as the first, as the, one of the courses. But um, yeah. yes, that sounds great. Um, I guess we will wrap up here, but for our last words, uh, where can people find you or contact you or um, learn more about your publications? If you're going to be um, well, I would follow our social medias. So the Ontario Near has all of the different uh, social media platforms, and so does the International Journal for Indigenous Health. But I think that Instagram and Facebook may be the probably the best place for that. And I'm not even sure if we have a Twitter account or not. But um, but I know that the social media is a great place to do that. If you want to contact me, you can just email me um, at suzanne.stewart at utoronto.ca. Or you can Google Suzanne Stewart's email. And I know it comes up. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about my work uh, on the internet. And I'm very easy to find. And I have a policy of responding to emails within 24 hours, hopefully. So if you need to talk to me, I'm always here to help. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much again for sitting down with me and carving out um, your precious time uh, to, to chat. Uh, but thank you so much. And to our listeners, you can find our uh, infectious info on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and stay tuned for more uh, podcasts. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. 